A new season of hockey is upon us, and so is a new season of the Flying Skate Podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Ben Bugera. So it's been a little while since I've recorded one of these. Not actually since last training camp. So after a long hiatus, I figure it's time that we start these up again and do this more regularly as the new hockey season is just around the corner at the start of this month. So there's a lot to dive into when it comes to the Vancouver Canucks these days, whether it be the battles in training camp or the issues surrounding the contract negotiations with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Not to mention the thing that everyone in Canuckland is talking about these days is Travis Hamanick, whether he will continue to play for the Canucks this season or will opt out, or even choose to retire and end his career. Due to what the Canucks have deemed a personal issue, but what many in the media have speculated is an aversion to taking the COVID-19 vaccine. So the Canucks have made their stance on the Hamannick issue clear. Jim Benning said in an interview with Ben Kuzma that he didn't want the media digging into it, that this is a personal issue, he's dealing with it by himself, and he wants people to respect his privacy and not try and speculate. But when Benning himself said the other day that the plan was for Travis Hamannick to come in the day after training camp started and he was going to be a part of their group, you can't help the media from speculating that there maybe was a promise there that maybe he decided to go back and rethought some things and that obviously is no longer the case as Travis Hamannick is still a holdout. So the question now remains is what is going to come of that issue? Because Hamannick and his $3 million cap hit could play a huge part in the negotiations with Hughes and Pedersen and the length of contract that the Canucks would be able to offer to those two players. Obviously, the most ideal outcome from the organization's standpoint is for Hamannick to report to the team and play this year because... As most fans know and most media have talked about over the offseason, the right side of defense with Tucker Pullman, Travis Hamannick, and Tyler Myers is already pretty weak on paper. So to lose Travis Hamannick would just be a huge blow. And basically you'd be forcing a guy like Luke Shen to play a top four role when he has been nothing more than a depth defenseman over the past five years. And while the argument can be made that Luke Shen did have success with Quinn Hughes in his short stint with the Canucks in his first season. That was a long time ago, and that was a very short, small sample size. So you can't rely on that as a comparable for a guy that's now three years older and is still not playing in a role that would be conducive to what he would need to be playing alongside Quinn Hughes. Look just at the defense partners that Hughes has played with since Luke Shen. You've got Chris Tanev, who, it goes without saying, is one of the most solid defensive defensemen in the league. Very underrated for years on the Canucks. He got rewarded with a good contract in Calgary. Yeah, he isn't the same player that he was maybe in his late 20s, 
but he can still move the puck. He can still defend really well. He blocks shots like no other guy. So losing a guy like that was a huge hit, as everybody in this market knows, the outcry over that. And then you look at the next year where he started off playing a little bit with Tyler Myers and then Hamannick came in and that started getting a little bit of chemistry. So you need to start trying to build off of that. You need to provide Quinn Hughes with that consistency. And if Hamannick doesn't choose to report, this could be another year of the first few games Quinn Hughes trying to struggle to find chemistry with a new player, whether that be Luke Shen, who a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, there's been chemistry before, so that could come back. No, that was years and years ago, and that was over less than 10 games. You can't ask a player to come in after that long of an absence and say, well, you had chemistry in a handful of games a few years back, so you can probably do it again for a full 82 games. That's not the way that the National Hockey League works. And no player, whether it be a depth defenseman or a top guy in the league, can be expected to subscribe to that idea. So I think it's really underrated how much consistency for players is. I mean, you saw it with Bo Horvat, who openly advocated for the Canucks to re-sign Tanner Pearson this year. And a lot of people say, yeah, the argument is that Pearson could have gone to another market and gotten them a good asset in return, whether that be a second round draft pick or even possibly a late first round draft pick with the way the market was at the trade deadline. And there's a good solid argument for that. But Bo Horvat was your captain. And he said to management, and he said openly that, no, I like Tanner Pearson. I've been playing with him for several years. He's been my line mate, and I want him on my team. And when your captain goes out and openly advocates for somebody like that, especially in a year right after you lost so many key players that a lot of Canucks were not happy about. I mean, you saw how JT Miller portrayed himself on the ice this year. He was pissed off. He was not happy about the way that the offseason went and the success of the team went downhill. I mean, you could say that he contributed to that and the way he played and some of the sloppy mistakes that he made on the ice. But JT Miller is just one example of it. The entire Canucks roster was baffled by a lot of the decisions that were made in the offseason. You know, not signing Markstrom, not signing Tanev, and losing to Foley was a big blow to this organization. And Travis Green was basically handed a plate of nothing to work with for last year. So players, rightfully so, were not happy about what management and ownership handed them to work with. So now let's fast forward to training camp this year. And there's a lot to unpack right now. You look at the game against Calgary last night and there's a lot of positives that came out of that game you look at both Connor Garland and Oliver Ekman Larson and man oh man if you know you don't want to take too much stock in preseason and that goes without saying because especially in a game like last night where you basically got the Vancouver Canucks versus the Stockton Heat Calgary was playing all of their minor league guys and the Canucks were playing I would say a good 60% of what could be their NHL opening night roster for October 13th. So you have to look at that success in those relative terms. But you have to look at 
what the results were, and Oliver Ekman Larson looked pretty damn good. And this is a guy who has had a lot hanging over his head in terms of expectations and what he might bring to the team or might not bring. People have called his contract, oh, well, this is a 30-year-old player with six years left on a large AAV. Oh, it could be Louis Erickson 2.0. And that, I think, is a very unfair expectation of Oliver Ekman Larson because there's a lot of factors that are different between him coming in and when Louis came in. Louis Erickson came in from the Boston Bruins after scoring 30 goals in a season so the expectation was that he was going to come in he was going to play with the Sedin twins and he was going to provide the Canucks with that offensive piece that was missing to get them back into a playoff race and potentially compete again for the Stanley Cup. Oliver Ekman Larson, completely different type of player. He's a defenseman, different position, and he's been stuck in an organization in turmoil down in Arizona. So I think it's unfair to judge him based on what he was. You've got to look at what he was dealt around him in that organization. Arizona is a complete dumpster fire of a team in the way that they're owned, in the way that they're managed. It's just not been good. Now, I do think Bill Armstrong's done a fair job trying to rebuild that team and acquire draft picks and play other teams' salary cap problems to his advantage. But the fact still remains that for the better part of four or five years, Oliver Ekman Larson has been stuck in a team that has been in a perpetual no-man's land in terms of what they are and what their team identity is. Are they rebuilding? Are they going to compete for the playoffs? No one really knows. But in that preseason game last night, what I saw from Oliver Ekman Larson with a beautiful no-look drop pass to Tanner Pearson for a goal, that was a player playing with confidence. He knew exactly where his man was and he played the puck extremely well. His mitts were extremely smooth when it came to how he handled his stick and how he handled the puck. He looked good, and he looked like he was gaining a lot of good chemistry with Tucker Pullman. Again, very, very early, and you can't take too much stock in a game that was basically us versus the AHL Flames. So if you look at it in that respect, then all right. Well, they showed some glimpses. They showed that they have the potential to be able to do it. But I'd like to see them do it against the real thing. So I think it'll be interesting to watch further along into the preseason when we start seeing more NHL regulars take to the ice. And by the end of this preseason, you should basically have a full NHL roster for the Canucks and for their opponents. So that'll be interesting to see and kind of give us a preview for what we could be watching on October 13th and into the season. And it's a no-brainer for most that Ekman Larson and Poolman and Garland and all these guys we're talking about are already penciled in as NHL regulars from day one. But what I'd like to talk about now is the players that have been standouts and are looking to break into this team on the fourth line and on the third pairing of defense. So you look at guys like Will Lockwood, This is a player who was drafted by the Canucks in the third round and has done a lot of time now in the minors building and working on his game. 
And I think we're finally starting to see with Lockwood how all that work he's done developing his game has paid off. He looks really good. Even in the part of the game I watched last night, he was winning puck battles, he was being physical in the corners, he was doing a lot of things right, and it made me kind of think, huh, this guy could be a real good addition to the fourth line on the Canucks, especially since we're looking at potentially both Brandon Sutter and Tyler Mott missing for the start of the season, and those guys arguably would most likely be your top penalty killers on the team. So if somebody like Will Lockwood could step up, he's a young guy, he he has that physicality, he's shown that now in practice, he's shown that now in the preseason games he's played, could he step in and take over that fourth line checking role and a penalty killing role? Now, there's a lot of risk to take with a young player who is inexperienced and hasn't played in that role at the NHL level yet. So that that is an issue to talk about. But really, there is no one else there that's shown that they could play that role. I mean, I've really liked Alex Chason and what he's done on a professional tryout. He's a guy that a couple years ago was a 20-goal scorer for Edmonton. He could put up points. He moved up and down the lineup. He played some power play time. He's six foot four. So one would think, okay, a guy like this could be physical, but the reality is, no, he's not a penalty killer. He's not somebody that does that. So signing him out of training camp, if he does end up getting a contract, you have to put into question, you know, what are you going to do with that penalty killer? Does that mean that JT Miller potentially gets moved onto the PK? And if you do that, then he's playing upwards of 22 to 24 minutes a night in that case, because you're probably playing him on the power play as well. So do you really want to tax a guy like JT Miller, who, yeah, he can do it, he can do it all, and he's shown that he's reliable in all aspects of the special teams, but that would really be taxing for JT, and that would be an issue in trying to manage a player like that's ice time. And Alex Chason doesn't really solve that. In addition to both Chason and Lockwood, Phil Giuseppe has also gained a lot of attention as being, again, another guy who has been a fringe NHLer for years, someone who signed that deal with the Canucks as a depth signing. But he's been really good. He's been physical. He is a bit of a chippy player, can provide offense arguably he's a player that has a lot more offensive upside than some of the other competitors in that bottom six contention so could somebody like di giuseppe come in and make the roster and make an impact on the penalty kill i think that's a very interesting prospect and for me personally i'd put him towards the front of that pack up there with will lockwood potentially just ahead of Alex Chason. Not that I don't think Chason has done well, but again, back to the previous point that penalty kill is the need. You don't need more guys that can play power play. I think you have enough of them at this point now with the addition of Connor Garland and Vasily Podkolzin can potentially play that role as well. So you really need to focus and put that energy into finding that fourth line penalty killer guy that can chip in physically can 
play in his own zone, can play a little bit of matchup game if needed to take the pressure a little bit off Bo Horvat and potentially Jason Dickinson, who are kind of penciled in as being the two more two-way centers that we have on this team to play in those matchup games and to play against the top players on everybody else's team. I do think that Chase Waters is a guy that also is somebody to watch. He looked really good in the game he played last night. He scored the goal, and I think he's a guy that has a lot of skill, but he's also only 21 years old, so he does have some work to be done. So I I don't think he would be a guy that I would pencil in as a potential NHLer. I mean, we'll see what happens in training camp. If he completely blows it out of the water in the next couple games, then that conversation could shift. But I think he's somebody that definitely down in Abbotsford is... Uh, a potential diamond in the rough to watch over the next couple years for the Canucks. So I want to shift the conversation now to probably the biggest conversation in Canuck land right now, and that would be the contract negotiations with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, which seemingly are still going back and forth, and there's still a lot of work left to be done on these contracts. Personally, I do think that the Hamannick situation may have potentially stalled the negotiations with Pedersen and Hughes as they're trying to wait to see what happens with that $3 million in cap space because that could significantly affect the types of deals that those guys could get. I was thinking about this a little bit today and yesterday as to what I think those types of deals would look like. Elliot Friedman brought up the Miko Rantanen contract as a comparable to Elias Pettersson, which would make it a 9.25 AAV on a six-year term. And to me, honestly, that deal does look very appealing because it locks him up until he's 28 years old at a cap hit that would be significantly less than if they went for an eight-year deal because that deal would certainly be north of what Braden Point got in Tampa Bay. And the only reason he got that contract in Tampa Bay and he accepted that because he's getting most of that money tax-free because of the Florida state tax laws. So that's a big consideration to think about when trying to compare the contracts that Tampa Bay is able to sign and contracts that other teams around the league are able to sign with certain players. Tax laws have everything to do with how big the cap hit is and how much of that money you're actually able to keep in pocket. I think it was uh, J.P. Barry, the agent for Pedersen and Hughes, who made the comment that $9.5 million in Tampa is not 9.5 in Vancouver, which is very much the truth. BC has very strict tax laws compared to pretty much non-existent tax laws down in Florida State. So that's something to consider. And I think that the bringing it back to the Rantanen contract comparable, that that would be a pretty appealing number for the Canucks and for Pedersen. And it would give him a fair amount of time to grow as a player and to show the market and the management team that he's worthy of one of those lucrative big contracts on his next deal. As for Quinn Hughes, I do think that the immediate comparable has to be Kale McCarr's deal. They're similar type players. I do think McCarr is leaps and bounds ahead of Quinn Hughes. As of right now, he's just a dynamic player that can do it all. And 
he, I think, will win the Norris Trophy this year or be in serious contention with Adam Fox again. So that $9 million over six years deal has to come into play when you're thinking of contract comparables for Quinn Hughes. Now, because of the fact that McCarr is, as of right now, very much ahead of Quinn Hughes in the conversation of who is better, I do think that that gives the Canucks a certain level of leverage. So would Quinn Hughes take that $9 million AAV but on a max term deal for eight years? And I think that's a serious consideration to take. Because if they can get Pedersen signed for six and have Hughes signed for eight, I think that's something that you do in a heartbeat. Because this franchise really needs stability and it needs their stars and some sense of longevity with these two guys. I also don't believe that the Canucks would want to land themselves in a situation where in a few years time they're negotiating both of these players deals in the same year again because that's a tough thing to have to do if they get matching terms. Now, I mean, if that matching term was eight years for both, I think you do that because, again, back to what I just said, is you want that longevity and that sense of security with those two players because they are your franchise cornerstones. They're both so young still, and they're going to be top players in the league for many, many years to come. So if there's an opportunity to do it for eight years and you can fit it under the cap, I think you do it in a heartbeat. Ideally, if it does end up being a bridge deal and this whole hypothetical thing with Travis Hamanick does not come to fruition and he does end up playing this year, you need to not do deals that are for matching term because you don't want to land yourself back in this situation, whether it be Jim Benning having to negotiate it or who knows, maybe it's going to be someone else depending on how the Canucks perform. So I think the only scenario that doing matching term deals with these guys makes sense if it is for max term. And I'm sitting here recording this podcast on a Tuesday night. So who knows, something could change as soon as tomorrow morning. And it's going to be really interesting to see how all those dominoes fall. The plan is to have another episode of the Flying Skate out later this week or early next week to recap preseason and roster cuts and to see if anything else falls, whether that be with the Hamannick situation or the Pedersen and Hughes signings. Thanks to everyone who tuned in and listened to the podcast today. The support is always greatly appreciated. Bye for now.